0: So, good evening, friends. It's a pleasure to be here once again and preaching on Hebrews, which is a book that I love a lot. Um, We are going to continue these explorations. A few weeks ago, I preached on Hebrews again. So last time, in order to try to preserve some novelty for those who are actually going to a Bible study, I forgot to mention in a Bible study last time, uh, we are going through Hebrews as well. So i try tried to sneakily skip a section of Hebrews to preserve the sense of novelty to, for those who attend that. This time I thought, wow, I can't take, you know, I can't use the same strategy again. So I concocted a different plan. I actually said I'm gonna preach on the same section that we went through. So uh, maybe I would have that sense of novelty as well because I think nobody saw that coming but uh, in all seriousness actually it was just a part of that section we're going to cover today hopefully from verse from chapter 8 uh verse 6 to 9:14 so i think especially for those who were not here uh, last time it's um, it's beneficial for us to do some sort of context and to try to recapitulate what what happened so far in hebrews i felt also here was making his argument for the superiority of Christ through the book of Hebrews. So he's showing uh, Jesus higher than the angels, Jesus higher than the prophets, Jesus better than Moses, and he even draws a comparison between the Sabbath rest and how in Jesus we find that eternal rest. The author goes on, actually, and delves into the whole concept, one of the dominant um, concept in, in, in Hebrews, which is the priesthood of Christ and how how is this great and perfect high priest and the order of Melchizedek. Then he goes on, actually, in doing so, he alluded to the fact that Jesus, by being the superior uh, high priest, he actually was a guarantor of a better covenant. So he introduced that theme there in chapter 7. So the plan for today is for us to consider some of these elements that actually make this covenant a better deal for us. I think even by mentioning this word covenant, sometimes we might be puzzled, or oh, what, what does he has in mind here? What, what's the deal or this covenant that he is referring to? Or actually, what's covenant in biblical categories? Um, some of you will probably be comfortable with that, that being reformed, or by speaking of Reformed theology, we usually refer to terms as, or being subscribers to what is known as covenant theology. And what is a covenant then? At its most basic level, it's a no-binding agreement. So human covenants, for instance, we say marriage, is a no-binding agreement that also would fall under this definition. If you're thinking divine covenants, and it's when God supremely and sovereignly established this relationship with his creatures, this agreement between God and his creatures, uh, secured by an oath and made by God by his own promises. So the theme of the covenant is also one of the dominant themes of the book of Hebrews. It's it's um, quoted first or it's mentioned first there when I said in chapter seven, but actually it appears seventeen times in this short epistle, and I think this idea of covenant is especially important. Or when we consider the readers, so Hebrews, the Hebrew in the root of all the religious thought of the Hebrew mind, of the Jewish mind, would be this idea of the covenant, be God making parts. Uh, contracts with his people, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. So in writing to them, um, he tends to unpack this idea of this covenant and how he relates now with the new one in a very persuasive manner. And he, the author of Hebrews here is trying to show why the new covenant with Jesus is better than the old one. So I think it's worth for us to have our Bibles open before us. We will be uh, skimming through some some texts here and some of these uh, verses. I think that also we can uh, probably think about at least three points that we could find here in this text today. The first one, I would put it like this, that this better covenant or a better deal is based on better promises a better deal is based on better promises. I like to say that i I love the beauties of scriptures i 've mentioned shared this it 's a kind of a silly thing that I have, but when I say that i 'm actually attempting to deliver this silly wordplay of the of the conjunction b u t but in the word beauty. So what, what is the conjunction but if not? Um, it, it tries to um, introduce an idea, a phrase or a clause that contrasts with an idea that, is, that comes before, isn't it? So in terms of, of the Bible, there are many buts that I love in the Bible and I'm especially struck when the idea that is actually introduced is much, much better than the one that was presented before. And I think we have many examples of that in the Bible. One that I like is in Ephesians 2, where we were told that we are dead in our transgressions and sins, we are being ruled by the devil, we're living in the flesh. Then what happens? But God. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So I I love that, but God, that introducing that newness, it shows this great change, doesn't it? So if you go back and actually even read Ephesians chapter 2, you see that we were dead in our trespasses, being ruled by the prince of the power of the air, living in total disregard and disobedience by God, and then God happens. It's beautiful, isn't it? So I think in Hebrews here we have the same thing. If we if we have a look at um, verses uh, chapter eight verse six, we see but Christ introducing this completely new idea, this completely uh, a new and better ministry, a new and better covenant that is mediated by our Lord, and then he goes on to quote Jeremiah thirty one which uh, f- uh, provides the basis of these new and better promises. Before we, we g- go into that, I think, um, because we might be thinking, what are the promises of this new covenant? But what were the promises of the old covenant? So is it the, the covenant with Abraham? Is it the covenant with Moses? What does the author have in mind here? So I think it's certainly the covenant with Moses, uh, of course, the, the law and works. Uh, which is the, the, the Abrahamic covenant? It's a different one. It's a, a promise and faith. So, in continue to, to to do so, he will try to contrast the promises of the old and the new one. And as I said, he quotes from uh, Jeremiah thirty one. Actually, uh, earlier on in the. In the service, we read from Jeremiah 33, but I think that we will enrich our understanding of this passage. Uh, Jeremiah 31, in this quotation here in the New Testament, is actually the longest uh, Old Testament quotation in in the New Testament. And not satisfied with that, the author of Hebrew goes on, and quotes again in chapter 10. Why does he do that? Why does he use this text? I think. There's, I think that this text, Jeremiah 31, provides basis for two things. One is that the Old Testament reproved the Old Covenant by its own account. And second, the promises of the New Covenant are found there. So, in doing so, he shows that the Old Covenant was imperfect, was powerless to an extent, and ultimate became obsolete, as he goes on to say in verse 8, 13. So to assess that uh, in, in, with better terms, I think we should look at the historical context here. Readers of the time, and I hope us as well, will probably n- know some similarities between the time of Jeremiah and the time that they were living. The Roman Empire in the 1st century had exercised a rule, a strong rule, um, over the people of Israel, oppressing them. And that was very similar to what happened with the Babylonians 600s before. Um, the, the people of Judah and Israel were, were being very oppressed as well. Now, the temple had been destroyed. Jerusalem had been taken. The Jews were extremely concerned with these things with, the you know, the temple, the sacrificial system, their objects. And then the the prophet Jeremiah comes with the message of restoration, of a promised time when they would not need to rely on these externalities like the temple, like works, and there would be a covenant, not uh, an external covenant, but an internal covenant with their soul, that the, the law being put in their minds, that written on their hearts. The old covenant served a purpose there and was to be a pointer to the new one, but it didn't have the actual power to deliver the promises. So, therefore, with the realization of this moment, with the appearance of Jesus, what happened is that old covenant would become obsolete. The promises of the new covenant are way better. Why? I think we have uh, many points here. One, because it's peacemaking. So even as we were saying of the historical context, the house of Judah and the house of Israel were divided. So, and the promises peacemaking, promises, reconciliation, even as a symbol of our own reconciliation uh, with that we have in, in Christ with God. The promises of the new covenant are better as I've mentioned because they are interior. You know the law is in is put in our minds, it's written on our hearts. The promises of the new covenant are better because they are universal. The new covenant is broader in scope. It's not just Israel, it's everyone. It's for all those who trust. The promises of the new covenant are better because they give us confidence. God assures us when he says he will be our God and we shall be his people. He provides, it's an assured covenant. But you know what amazes me is that All of these truths, they were hidden in clear sight. They were there in the Old Testament in Jeremiah. The author of Hebrews unpacks these long-known truths behind the, the Jewish audience that he has there. And I think there's definitely a lesson for them, but there's a lesson for us here as well. That we are to be attentive learners. We are to love our Bibles. We are to read them and to pray with God for to illuminate us, to show us uh, the wisdom that is hidden here and to apply it to our hearts. We are to take heart on the many promises of the Bible. So we saw that a better deal is based on better promises. This week, as I said uh, in our Bible study, even as we started to read this very first verses here in chapter 9, we went Jewish mode totally. We started, you know, discussing about the intricacies of the temple, you know, the, of the presence, the sacrificial system, trying to come up with even speculations about, you know, the, the symbolisms there. And it can be quite overwhelming and could actually drag us to this appreciation of the former glory of, of, of the old uh, system. But obviously, there's a point as here. There's there's a point for us. There's a point why the um, writer here mentions. You can see that um, he describes these treasures of the the Old Testament, Old Covenant here. He describes the temple, he describes the way the, the preparations without lingering too much over them. He's not hastily dismissed either because he has an agenda and his argument is not to portray the glories of the old covenant, but actually to show how it points to a necessity, the necessity of a new covenant. So even as we read here, it can can look that it's very descriptive, but we must be attentive to these pointers for instance, when it says about the Day of Atonement, and it describes here Yom Kippur, it describes how this, this is the holiest day of the year for the Jews. Um, it's where the sacrifices had to be performed in the temple. There was this outer tent where just the regular priests were allowed. And then there was this thick curtain, and there was this innermost section where only the high priest was allowed, and only once a year and not in a trivial manner. No, he had to be uh, to go through a ritual, to sprinkle blood, to clean, to to be cleansed uh, of his iniquities. First, he had to be prepared to do that. Can you see that there is a, an idea here of restricted access, so of limitation, of segregation, of a, there was a limited freedom. So the author goes on to, to actually to expand this idea and even, but if we, if we come to think, even back then and even now, the what separates us from God, the restricted access, is not just the thick curtain. What separates us from God is that the sprinkling, or, or back then especially, is that the sprinkling of that blood made by the Levitical high priest was only partial. It wouldn't get rid of the sins effectively. It would only cover the sins. It couldn't tackle, it couldn't deal with the wounded conscience. It could not bring them peace. Also, and lastly, the atonement performed there was also limited. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he would sacrifice only one day for a year for the unintentional sins of the people. So by using this contrast, I think our author of Hebrews tries to remind us and to set us towards this better hope that we can have now unrestricted access, that we can enjoy the privilege of this undeserved pardon and efficient cleansing, comprehensive and unlimited in power. We also see a very important note here. You know, with this idea of the restricted access, that the high priest had to sacrifice for himself before going to the Holy of Holies. Christ, as our representative, also had to shed his blood to enter into the heavenly temple, into the heavenly tabernacle. He had to sacrifice. And, but now he is there as our perfect high priest. And even now he interests for us. So there was no other way. You see all of these pointers? The new covenant was actually necessary. There is no salvation by works. We do not possess merit in and out of ourselves. The old covenant serves us to show us that. And we need to see that the fulfillment of that promises, of those promises, the fulfillment of the ceremonial law could only be made by the perfect life and death of Jesus Christ. Again, I, I think I, I must go there again. Isn't it beautiful? And even as we were discussing these things in our Bible study, we usually go through these rounds of discussions, we read some commentaries, we have this moment of prayer. And actually, I love it. The moments of prayers are the best ones. And I think it's a very important time for us to... Get to know each other, to pray and to be encouraged by one another. And also to have this midweek prayer in the fellowship of brothers and sisters. And I remember Boise, sorry to put it in the spot, he asked to to, to pray for his forgetfulness. And I was, I was really intrigued by that. And I was struck by that. And I kept thinking about that. And in doing the sermon preparation, I was thinking, Sometimes it's really, really hard for us to forget something, if you try to forget. If you try to forget something, it, it, it looks like the thing is actually more impressed into our minds. And I think, we should, oh, we should do that, so shouldn't we? But in all seriousness, um, I think what we see here, especially when you look at chapter 12 of, of um, chapter 8... For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. God will forget our sins. God will forget our sins. When our sins are confessed, God pledges to forget. And quite the contrary, as we are reminded here in this verse, God says that he will actually remember his mercy and forget our iniquities. It's... It's really amazing. So, what are you going to do today, I ask, when you are confronted with this? Perhaps you are a mature Christian, and perhaps, you know, the adversary, the devil, the the prince of the power of the air is there saying, no, you are not good enough. Your sins are too much. You need to try harder. You need to be better. Don't go that way. There's a dead end. Actually, if you want a better deal, it's with Christ. Get that deal. In Christ, you can have this open, unrestricted access to the most holy place. And it required nothing of you but the blood of Jesus. Do you see that? Do you trust that? So approach him with sincere penitence, with sincere hearts, And all of these benefits that come with the newness of life will be given to you. Everything old is made new in him. So we see here that um, a better deal was actually necessary. Then lastly, in closing, we see that a better deal make us better dealers. So a better deal make us better dealers. And in thinking about this, I thought, you know, the superhero movies are very trendy these days, aren't they? And you know how, how it goes, the superhero stories, There's someone's taking a bid, someone's being harassed, a store bank, a planet is being destroyed, and then, out of the blue, a superhero appears and saves the day. We're all left with the sense of cheering, supporting the superhero. And even if we were to put ourselves, you know, in the shoes of those being saved, we would probably think they might be very grateful. I think it's a similar reaction that the author of Hebrews wants to imprint on us here, to provoke in us. When we see our our second birth cries here in the covers verses 9, 11 to 14, all was very gloomy, wasn't it? If you see um, in, in these various um, regulations and washings, so looked everything very rigid and gloomy in one sense. The odd seems to be in the disfavor of the people here. And then the appearance of Christ came as a game changer. He enters the scene. He gets rid of this apparent frustration that is here, this limited effectiveness of the old covenant. And he brings new things, a more perfect tent, not made by human hands, a sacrifice of his own blood, not of animals. So in contrasting once again these things, the old and the new, he makes this argument from the lesser to the greater. Inspiring us, you know, this gratitude, this reaction of thanksgiving. So we 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 want to think, okay, one thing we we are to be grateful. But what are the effects this covenant have? What are its effects? I think first we see very clearly here, and more importantly, is eternal redemption. And redemption, if you go on to uh, discuss in Hebrews, it's a very important theme here as well. And he shows this with a series of contrasts. And the list is actually almost endless. You see the temple as the earthly place, and you see Jesus, the heavenly tent. What is external, it becomes internal, which is temporary. And feeble is actually indestructible and uh, eternal, uh, the in, involuntary shedding of the blood of animals versus, you know, the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus. The repetition of the sacrifices in the Levitical uh, system is replaced by once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. We could go on, you know, stain against the unblemished, uh, the priest that had to be replaced because they died, against Jesus who is a priest forever. The incompleteness of the earthly sacrifice system versus the finished work of the cross. It's, it, we could go on, but I think the point in scope here in contrasting is that it's much, much more better. This, the, the old covenant wasn't able to procure in our favor these things. The cleansing through the sacrificial system was merely ceremonial, leaving a wooden conscience behind, isn't it, when the, it's mentioned here. But what we want the most, what we want the most, I think we said a few times, is to enjoy, what's the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. That wasn't possible through the law. The law in itself is good. It shows the character of God. But for sinners as we are, it's a constant reminder of our fallenness. Only Christ can sprinkle our hearts clean. Only Christ can deliver us from the dead works, justifying us, making us righteous before God. And remember, he is speaking here for people who are fearing persecution, perhaps turning away of their faith. They are to be reminded that the freedom is in Christ, a freedom of conscience. But all of these benefits, all of these effects, they are not without purpose. They are actually uh, very purposeful. And there is a nice play of words here, probably much better than my silly wordplay, play, uh, at the verse 14, isn't it? If you read verse 14, at the end of it, so it says, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So from dead works to serve... A living God. It's a complete game changer. Again, we are called to serve, not to perform. We are called to, not to bargain with God, but to have a relationship with Him. Our works, the works that we do now, are fulfilling, are rewarding, uh, are light, are not heavy, full of energy. So how, how do we apply this? If you understood that you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, I think you ought to consider this very seriously. There, there's only one response that you are to, to give, and it's gratitude first. And perhaps, once again, even as a mature Christian, perhaps you are finding that inertia of your spiritual life Perhaps you need to be stirred up with a life of renewed commitment in service. Do you see here the privilege that you have in this deal with Christ? It's a much better deal. He has obtained that for you. And you are saved with a purpose, as we are reminded here, to be God's people. To be God's people is to serve him. It's a better covenant that makes you a better servant, it's a humbling humbling, and delightful surrender, though. And I assure you, in doing so, you are going to find fulfillment without measure, an enjoyment that lifts up the soul and that glorifies God through your existence forever. Let's pray.